Good morning. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17, and this morning's scripture reading will read 417 through 514. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity of covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we turn our attention now to your holy and inspired word, we do ask you that you would speak to us. Father, we confess that we need to hear your word. 
Lord, things that we know we need to be reminded of, things we might not know we need to learn. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to not be mere hearers of the Word, but that we would indeed be doers of the Word. Lord, by your grace, empower us to walk as children of light for your glory, for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain places, I trust we would agree, that are best traversed not in the darkness. You might think of a back alleyway. During the day, it might be a great, quick way to get from one street to the next. At night, in the dark, not so much, right? Or how about navigating your way through a Lego-filled bedroom? Any of you young parents of young kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? During the day, you can kind of tiptoe your way through that. But at night, you know good and well landmines exist in that room, and it's no fun. My family enjoys hiking in Colorado. We love to climb mountains. And some of the most amazing places on those hikes are some of the most dangerous places, right? There's times where you'll literally walk along a ledge with a sheer drop, and it is just stunning. Or, Or maybe when you get to the top, You know, depending on your courage level, you get as close as you can, or as one of my kids who shall remain nameless would actually like climb out there and sit with his feet hanging off. But it's stunning, right? It's it's when you are in those places that you just say, wow, look what God did. And so in the day, it's glorious. At night, it is stupid, unless you're a Navy SEAL with night vision goggles, Right? My point is, bad things seem to flourish in the dark. Dangers lurk in the dark. We know that. Biblically speaking, evil flourishes in the dark. And in our passage this morning, as we pick up on Paul's teaching as to how we're to live as new creations in Christ, Paul continues along the lines that he's been going and what we should and shouldn't do, what we should put off and what we should put on, but you'll notice that he's changing metaphors here, talking in terms of not walking in darkness, but instead walking in the light. And this idea of light-darkness is actually pretty common biblical imagery, with light being associated with God and darkness being associated with evil, indeed, the demonic. For when we get to Ephesians 6, that great spiritual warfare passage, Paul's going to say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And thus here he's sort of teeing up that idea for us by saying, stay away from that which is dark. Walk in the light. Or another way of saying the same thing, he's saying, dear Christian, live in light of your new reality in Christ. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be working through verses 3 through 14 this morning, and I'm going to begin by reading 
verses 3 through 6, where we'll see the first point on your outline that he begins exhorting us not to walk in the way of darkness. Look at verses 3 through 6. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Here Paul begins with a command that we put off all kinds of sexual immorality. And let me just set the context for a moment. First of this text, and then there in Ephesus. First, we absolutely have to remind ourselves that Ephesians begins with three glorious chapters of the glorious realities of how God has saved dark, rebellious sinners like us, right? He chose us from before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons to a glorious inheritance. He he sent His Son Jesus to accomplish our redemption by going to the cross for us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He made us who were dead spiritually alive with Christ. And in doing so, He he broke the chains of our slavery to the world, the devil, and our flesh. He made us new people, God's own craftsmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Church, that is our new reality. And if we don't think of all that we're going to talk about today in light of that new reality, we could dangerously and grossly flip the script and somehow hear in what we're going to talk about that we must live a certain way to earn our place with God. But that's just wrong. First, we could never do that. Sinners like us could never earn our place with a holy God. And and second, it's completely the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Our Trinitarian God created a people for Himself, all of His own mercy and grace. And in light of that reality, Paul said in chapter 4, as he turns the corner to focus on how we now live, he said, therefore, because of all of that, I urge you walk, to live in a manner worthy of that glorious calling, which we said when we covered that was really the category heading for all of chapters 4 through 6. So then in verse 17, he leans in on this walking worthily of our calling a little more, saying, this I say in testifying the Lord that you no longer walk, no longer live as the Gentiles. In other words, Christians don't live like the unbelieving world around us. He says they live in the futility of their mind. They're they're darkened in their understanding. 
And then Paul picks up on this darkness motif here in our text this morning and wants us to come clear that all sex outside of the context of a marriage between one man and one woman, and in this context you probably have to say one biological man and one biological woman, anything outside of that is out of step with the new humanity. It comes from a darkened understanding of an unbelieving world, which leads to the context of Ephesians. If you think our culture is off the rails in the realm of sexual activity, let's just say we've not yet reached the level that the Greco-Roman world was in. There, illicit sexual activity was everywhere you looked, literally. As one commentator puts it, adulterous relationships, men sleeping with their slave girls, incest, prostitution, sacred sexual encounters in the local temples, and homosexuality were all part of everyday life for the Ephesians, end quote. You could be walking down the street with your kids and you see this guy walk into the temple, right? The place of worship. And you know he's going in there to sleep with a temple prostitute so that the rains might come and the crops would, would grow. And so Paul's dealing with something that was very, very pervasive. And notice he deals with it head on, no tap dancing around it. Now, this would have been remarkably applicable to his first readers, just as it is for us today. Here, Paul says, sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you. And that's not like Voldemort and Harry Potter, right, who, who goes by he who must not be named. No, no, Paul's point here is that sexual immorality should be so far from the people of God that it doesn't even come up, right? An outsider observing the church sees none of it so that it's not even a topic of conversation. Now, what's he talking about with the words translated here as sexual immorality and impurity? Well, in short, these two words together, as you most commonly find them in these lists in the New Testament, these two words together make it clear that he's talking about every form of sex that is not biblically sanctioned in a one-man, one-woman covenant of marriage. So, just so we're all on the same page, this would include any sexual activity between a man and a woman, between a boy and a girl, before they're married. That is completely out of bounds for the new creation in Christ. Now, this would include any sort of sexual activity among those who are married that's not with their spouse that they made a covenant with. Uh, that's, again, out of step with the new creation. And again, given that the Bible has absolutely no category at all for homosexual marriage, and given that in God's holy and inspired word, which is our final authority over all things, given that that makes it clear that marriage is between one man and one woman, this then would include any sort of homosexual sexual activity. So let's just put it out there, shall we? This would have had the Ephesian Christians completely out of step with their culture. And it certainly has us out of step with our culture. Our culture revolves around sex. It's everywhere. It's in every show, every ad, every web page. 
What's more, sex is so pervasive in our culture that people now identify themselves, they identify their very personhood in terms of what they prefer sexually. Hello, my name's Susie. I'm bi. Oh, nice to meet you, Susie. My name's Jerry. I'm straight. The Holy Scripture here says no. No, 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 no. That is not the way it is among the people of God. Remember, he said in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 4, look back up there, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but... That is not the way you learned Christ. New creations in Christ follow Jesus. We don't follow culture. And we have to learn not to give a flying rip if we're out of step with culture. I mean, get over it. I can't even begin to list the number of false teachings that have cropped up in the church over the last 50 years or so as we've tried to make ourselves more palatable for the church. And we never will. So move on. We must be willing to be blessed as Jesus defined blessing in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Because we're standing on Scripture. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward, which is way better than a pat on the back from an unbelieving friend. Your reward is great in heaven. We must embrace the reality, church, that biblical authority and cultural authorities say two completely different things. But we're equally clear that for the true follower of Christ, the Bible, once for all delivered to the saints, is our ultimate authority. And the Bible helps us out by telling us that unbelievers who are darkened in mind, heart of heart, would push things like this on us that are completely out of step for what it is to be a child of God because it's completely out of step with the Word of God. And thus, for the Christian, we're called to put off all forms of sexual sin. What's more, Paul says, we're to put off all We're to put off all coveting. Some argue here that like the terms sexual immorality and impurity, this one too should be limited to the sexual realm. But I don't think that's right. If you look at the original, um, the ESV gets this one spot on here because in the original, the first two are linked with a coordinating conjunction and whereas the second one is set off with an or so as to set it off as a different category of sin to be avoided. Now, that said, there's clearly a link. I mean, if you pop back up to chapter 4, verse 19, they're talking about unbelievers. Paul said they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. That's a different term for sexual immorality. Practicing every form of impurity. That's the word used here. Practicing every form of impurity with greed or with, with, with coveting. Same word is here. So, so coveting somebody sexually is definitely in, in play here. You might think in terms of 
what we usually use the word lust, right? Um, and we see this in the Ten Commandments. Spelled out that you not only should not covet your neighbor's house, right, but you should also not covet your neighbor's wife. So here in Ephesians 5, this coveting would include coveting your neighbor's wife, but it's not limited to that. Maybe you want his car and his boat too. Uh, the point is that desire of the natural man or the natural woman to have more and more, right? More and more sex, more and more money, more and more stuff. Paul says is in the realm of darkness, and it should be put off from the people of God. But he's not done with the putting off, for Paul wants those who walk in the light to put off all forms of filthiness, including filthy talk. He says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place among you. And this out of place among you is parallel to not even having sexual immorality and covetous named among you. And again, the point is because these are out of step with who we are as new creations in Christ. Here he begins with the word filthiness, which appears to be a catch-all term for everything that he's not covered with the term sexual immorality, covetousness, or filthy talk. And it's a little challenging to know exactly what he has in mind here, but I think Clinton Arnold's probably correct when he says in his commentary, quote, the specific kinds of behaviors Paul has in mind here are difficult to know, but certainly could extend to lewd gestures, inappropriate touching, disgusting kinds of practical jokes, and a wide variety of other believers. So, for example, a Christian just sort of going along with the cultural norms and shooting someone the finger because they're mad or even because they think it's a funny joke, or inappropriately grabbing themselves, or some of the other inappropriate, impractical jokes celebrated for us on various social media platforms. These have no place in the life of the Christian. And what's more, and don't let it be lost on us that we're back to the mouth now and not speaking in a way that causes rot in the church, but in a way that builds up. And when we think of these terms, crass talk, crude joking, he says, is completely out of bounds. It's another form of talk that rots the church. You know, our, our, our former president was caught on tape saying some stunningly vile things. I, I trust you probably remember those. And I was so disappointed when, when asked, his defense was, it's just locker room talk. It's just what guys do. Church, it's not what Christian guys do, right? It's not just locker room talk. It's not okay. Holy Scripture says it's completely out of place. It's out of step with who you are as a new creation in Christ. We put it off. And instead, he says we put on thanksgiving. And this is very helpful. Think about this. Instead of sexual immorality, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, instead of those things, the Christian is to put on thanksgiving. Now, we might have read that and expected him to say something like, instead of those things, put on holiness or put on righteousness. But he goes to thanksgiving. Why do you think that is? I think the reason here is so important. I think it's because it has everything to do with the position of the heart. The one who is pondering how immensely thankful they are to Christ for our salvation that we don't deserve, for being chosen from before the foundation of the world for reasons we'll never know, 
We're so thankful for the righteousness of Christ that now is applied to our account. So thankful for the eternal inheritance we've been sealed to receive. That person is not going to be inclined to get up from such pondering, from the uttering of thankfulness for those things, and go and pursue that which is a direct affront to the very God he's thankful to. On the other hand, the one who's focused on how little sex he or she is getting, or how little money he has, going grumbling about the size of his or her house, will most certainly be inclined toward the very areas we've been exhorted to put off like old stinking clothing. And here, we absolutely can't miss Paul's reasoning. This is, this is sobering. It's here to be sobering. He says the reason we want to avoid the things of verses 3 through 4 like the plague is because a lifestyle, notice my language, I'm not talking about a believer falling into sin and repenting, a lifestyle characterized by such things demonstrates that such person is not truly a child of God, and we need to let the Word of God speak. I know this runs contrary to a common teaching in the American church of pray a prayer and you're all set. Paul's saying it doesn't matter if you pray a prayer, baptize, pasteurize, homogenize, and whatever else. If the life isn't changed, well, let, let him do the talking because the, the warning is sobering. He's saying that the one whose lifestyle is characterized by these things is an unbeliever. That's what he means when he says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God or the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. We know that's what he's talking about because we know every single child of God has a glorious inheritance coming, period, full stop. We also know not one single child of God will face a tiny bit of the wrath of God, also period, full stop. But the one whose lifestyle is characterized by these things is not a child of God according to Scripture. But rather, look at the term Paul uses. He's a son of disobedience. So, so this is a sobering warning. And Paul puts it in the camp of certainty. He says, you may be sure of this. Not, you might surmise. No, he says, you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And this is by no means the only place Scripture talks like this. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that those who used to live like that before they came to Christ have no inheritance. No, because if we went on in 1 Corinthians 6, he goes on to say, and such were some of you. Right? In other words, you used to live like that. He says, and here again is our new reality, but you were washed. Praise God. You were, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So again, the point is, new creations in Christ live like new creations in Christ. And yet Paul knew that people were going to push against this. And so Paul wants us to be crystal clear. Back in Ephesians 5, verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you on this. 
He understands the world's aim is to deceive us on this. And we see it all the time, don't we? In the media, in politics, now starting at the youngest possible levels in our schools. It's okay. It's just sex. And we were created as sexual beings. You, you, you need to live in light of what you feel. If you think you're a boy, you're a boy. If you think you're a girl, you're a girl. If you, if you feel like you want to be with that person, be with that person. And in fact, to fight against that. Oh my goodness. If anybody would cause you to fight against that. That's abuse. They're causing psychological harm. Paul says, let no one deceive you. He also understood deception also comes from within at times. False teachers in the church. False teachers in the church say things like, the Word of God didn't really mean that. Come on. It's written thousands of years ago. Our job is to bring it current. That's an old antiquated system, sort of patriarchal and all of that. We got, we got to bring this up to date, soften it a little bit around the edges. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. In fact, he goes so far as to say, do not be partners with them, but instead walk as children of light. And that's our second major point. Comes from verses 7 through 14. Walk in the light. Look back at the text. He says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. We have another therefore. This one picks up on what he's just said. Those who are sexually immoral, impure, or covetous have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And because of these things, the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience. And because of this, Christians, he says, should not be partners with them. Christians should not be partners with the sons of disobedience, with unbelievers. The particular word translated here, partners, is quite rare in the New Testament. It's only here and earlier in this book in chapter 3, verse 6. But, but it is related to the word that we often translate as fellowship, that idea of a close association with mutual sharing of our lives. If we look back to chapter 3, verse 6, the other place where this word is, I, I think we get a sense of what Paul is saying, the, this idea of partners, how close it is. He says there, If you look at that verse, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, now sometimes Gentiles can be used as unbelievers, sometimes Gentiles can be used as uh, an ethnic group, right? Those who are non-Jews. Here it's the latter because in in chapter 3 he's dealing with the Jew-Gentile issue and how Jewish Christians are brought in with, I'm sorry, Gentile Christians are brought in with Jewish Christians. So he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are now, watch how close they are, fellow heirs, both going to be in glory together. That's pretty close. Fellow heirs, members of the same body. 
as close as the hand is to the arm. That's pretty close. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers, exact same word, partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, so this is getting at a very intimate relationship, isn't it? Christians are partners with one another in the promise in Christ through the gospel. We're, we're in business together, if you will. Our, our, our relationship is as close as can be. When we come to Christ, we have a, a new community with which we are to have our close relationships with, with which we're to fellowship. And that said, pivoting off of that idea of closeness and with where he goes at the end of this section and say 1 Corinthians 5, I think we can trust that his point is not that we don't associate with unbelievers at all. And this is, this is an important distinction. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of the world. But I'm writing that you not associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. With such a one, don't even eat. And so his point is not that we are to run off into some sort of of Christian bunker and never associate with the world. No, our, our mission is tied to the world. The point is that there's different kinds of relationships, right? The point is that we're not to be in so deep of relationships where we're going to be influenced to follow their lead. I think verse 11 is intimately related here. There he says, take no part, that's actually the word fellowship, take no partnership in the unfruitful works of darkness. So maybe we think in terms of influence. I want to be in relationships with unbelievers where I can love them, be a salty, thinking in terms of Christ saying salt and light, be a salty influence for Jesus, and Lord willing, maybe be one of God's means and seeing them cross over from darkness into light. But, but such a relationship would be different than my relationship with other believers, right? It's, such a relationship would not be the same level of mutual sharing, mutual learning where iron sharpens iron, right? You have to be careful getting that close because then it might be like concrete rubbing off on iron, dulling the iron. And this is directly tied to Paul's reasoning here. Notice he says, don't be partners with them because at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so what's he doing here? He, he's, again, pointing us back to that fundamental shift that happened at conversion. You're a new creation in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Look at the language closely. It's not what you might have expected. Notice he does not say, for at one time you were in darkness, and now you're in the light. That is not the words he uses. He says, at one time you were darkness. And this is another area where Scripture runs contrary to the wisdom of the age, isn't it? He's saying back when we were unbelievers, we were darkness. This is getting at what theologians refer to as total depravity. Now, total depravity doesn't mean we're all as bad as we could possibly be. No, because of God's common grace, we weren't all Adolf Hitlers running around out there. But we were completely dark. Spiritually, we were dead. And like the metaphor of dead and alive, and the light-darkness metaphor, we were dark. 
But now, he says, we're light in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said of his people, you are the light of the world. So this is another metaphor of conversion. Once dead, now alive. So also once dark, now light. And thus we don't partner with darkness, just like we don't partner with deadness. Instead, we are to walk as children of light. We are to live within our new reality and the expected fruit of those who are in the light. Fruit is helpful, right? That which flows from something else in terms of the root and the fruit. The fruit is all that is good, right, and true. So we're to live in light of our new reality as new creations in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Our works are good, right, and true, and in the process we discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Those who are light, putting some stuff back together from the previous weeks, are daily being renewed in our minds by the Holy Spirit of God as we study the Word of God, and the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and He massages it deep down into our souls so that we can test and approve what is indeed good, right, and true. And that's why, verse 11, we take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead, watch this, expose them. We shine our light on them. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you had time to go home today and read some of the commentaries, you'd see that this is a point where you've got some sort of in-house debate as to whether this is talking about whether we are to expose the unfruitful works of darkness of wayward believers so that this doesn't become a pattern in their life, or whether it's exposing the works of darkness of unbelievers. And let me just say, to me, that seems about as useful as trying to decide whether the right wing or the left wing of an airplane is that which keeps it in the air. We know Christians are susceptible to the things of this text, or there'd be no need for the admonition. We also know that regardless of what someone professes, if their lifestyle is characterized by these things, that person is not a Christian, as we are told, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God and instead face the wrath of God. So there's a degree to which the life and witness of the Christian is to expose the deeds of darkness, whether they're in the church as a struggling believer whether they're in the church as an unbeliever who's made a profession of faith, or whether they're outside of the church entirely. On the inside, you're in Galatians 6.1 realm. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that's any Christian, you have the Spirit, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Only keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we expose the darkness in a believer. That that said, it's also clearly talking about exposing the darkness of unbelievers, given the overall context of the emphasis on these deeds being lived out by those who are dark in the immediate context of the light-darkness metaphor we just looked at in terms of conversion, and the fact that Paul is about to land the plane of his whole argument with the hopes of their conversion. I mean, that's the point of verses 13 and 14. Take no part in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Here, the them is clearly the deeds of darkness. They're the deeds described earlier. 
the deeds of an unbeliever, which Paul says are shameful to even speak what they do in secret. Now, the emphasis is not exposing the person per se, but the, but the deeds. He goes on to say, when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And you might be saying, oh, hold on a second, what's he talking about? Well, he's dealing in the land of metaphor right now. So you've got to just go with the metaphor to understand what he's talking about. Remember, he's been talking this way. He just said, you were once darkness. Were you really? Like if I looked at you as an unbeliever, could I not see you? That's not the point. It's, it's metaphor. You were once darkness. Now you are light. Here he's saying, when something's exposed by light, it becomes visible. And anything that becomes visible, he says, is light. So he's just talking about this process, right? A few cross-references might be helpful. In John 3, 20 through 21, we read, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So here, light exposes darkness, the one who comes to the light demonstrates that he's a new creation, right? Because his works are carried out in God. Not carried out by himself, carried out in God. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that I quoted earlier. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So again here, Paul's using light to signify conversion. Another helpful passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25. He doesn't, he doesn't use the word light here, but this idea of being exposed is at play in the realm of conversion. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are exposed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. See, all of this is pointing to the reality that Paul's point is that by nature of our being light, our nature of those who are light walking in the light, God uses that to bring others to the light. Or speaking in non-metaphorical terms, God uses Christians as one of His primary means of saving sinners. Tom Schreiner says it well. He says, quote, the moral excellence of believers' lives plays a role in bringing people to faith. Instead of participating in evil, believers are to bring it to light and expose it. When evil is exposed to the light, then salvation for those in darkness may occur. Paul cites what is an early Christian hymn, Arise, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ shall shine upon you. Almost certainly this is related to the conversion of those who are slumbering in the darkness of evil and who have risen to life in Christ when He shines on them in His grace." End quote. So the point here is that our light as Christians, who we are as Christians, exposes the deeds of darkness and becomes one of God's means of saving sinners. Remember, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Then he says, let your light shine before men so that they see your good works and give glory to God, your Father who's in heaven. How does an unbeliever give glory to God? Because he comes to faith. 
He hears the gospel. He sees light. And he comes to faith. As Christians, we expose darkness as we walk in the light. But to be sure, we speak two things that are contrary to Scripture. If a friend says something like, I believe sex is natural and we should just live and let live, church, we can't just go along to get along. We lovingly expose that with the truth of Holy Scripture. Maybe you say, friend, I hear you, but, you know, I'm a Christian, and the Bible for the Christian is my ultimate authority, and it says that sex is beautiful and wonderful, but, but, but that it's reserved for a one-man, one-woman covenant of marriage. And then maybe if you have time, if they'll, if they'll let you, paint for them the picture of why, where this is all going later in this chapter, how all of it points to Jesus. And you lose that. You lose, you lose the whole way that it points to Jesus. So we expose with our words. And what's more, we expose the darkness of how we live. Many of you have heard me share a little bit about how I came to faith in Christ. I was playing baseball in college. I had heard the gospel a few years before, and there were three believers on my team, three lights in an extremely dark place, and man, they let their light shine. And it was through that, through their words, they would talk to me. And when I started thinking about the gospel, let me tell you, I watched them like a hawk. I was at a Christian school. There was a lot of cultural Christianity. That didn't help me at all. It confused the fire out of me. Why are these people that say they're Christians doing some of the same stupid stuff I'm doing, right? It was, it, it was dumbfounding. But these three guys, it started to make sense. Oh, the gospel is true. Look what it's done in their lives. And God used that to draw me to Himself, to bring me out of darkness into light. Flip over to 1 Peter 2. I know it's getting late. This will be the last text we look at. 1 Peter 2. I'm going to end on this. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. Another beautiful description of our new reality. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. Christian, this is you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, so that, watch this purpose statement, so that you might proclaim, there's evangelism, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So you got the proclamation and the sanctification. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, he's going to look back to what Jesus said about letting our light shine, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Christians, we are to live as light. We are to speak as light. And by God's grace, some in the darkness might get saved. Listen, perhaps you're here this morning. And this morning, in God's kindness, as you've been sitting there in that chair, the Word of God has exposed a lifestyle of sin in your life and your need 
for Jesus. And I just want to tell you, Jesus stands ready to save today. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Christ. Look to Jesus today. For those who believe in Jesus, all of our sin, past, present, future, is nailed to the cross with Jesus, removed from God's accounting as far as the east is from the west. Dear unbeliever, look to Christ. Awake, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. For believers, by the grace and power of God, out of the overflow of what He's already done for us in Christ, may we walk as children of light, pointing others to Jesus every chance we get. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your kindness and saving sinners like us. We thank You for Your Word and how You instruct us. And I pray for this church. Lord, would You give us the grace to be the light You've called us to be for Your glory, for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.